Lives of the Eminent Grammarians, Part One of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lini. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Lives of the Eminent Grammarians, Part One. The science of grammar was, in ancient times, far from being in vogue at Rome. Indeed, it was of little use in a rude state of society, when the people were engaged in constant wars, and had not much time to bestow on the cultivation of the liberal arts. At the outset, its pretensions were very slender, for the earliest men of learning, who were both poets and orators, may be considered as half-Greek. I speak of Livius and Aeneas, who are acknowledged to have taught both languages as well at Rome as in foreign parts. But they only translated from the Greek, and if they composed anything of their own in Latin, it was only from what they had before read. For although there are those who say that this Aeneas published two books, one on letters and syllables, and the other on meters, Lucius Cotta has satisfactorily proved that they are not the works of the poet Aeneas, but of another writer of the same name, to whom also the treatise on the rules of augury is attributed. Crates of Malus, then, was, in our opinion, the first who introduced the study of grammar at Rome. He was contemporary with Aristarchus, and having been sent by King Attalus as envoy to the Senate, in the interval between the Second and Third Punic Wars, soon after the death of Aeneas, he had the misfortune to fall into an open sewer in the Palatine quarter of the city and broke his leg. After which, during the whole period of his embassy and convalescence, he gave frequent lectures, taking much pains to instruct his hearers, and he has left us an example well worthy of imitation. It was so far followed that poems, hitherto little known, the works either of deceased friends of, or other approved writers were brought to light, and, being read and commented on, were explained to others. Thus, Caius Octavius Lampadio edited the Punic War of Nevius, which, having been written in one volume without any break in the manuscript, had divided into seven books. After that, Quintus Vargantius undertook the annals of Aeneas, which he read on certain fixed days to crowded audiences. So Lelius Archelaus and Vectius Philocomus read and commented on the satires of their friend Lucilius, which Linnaeus Pompeius, a freedman, tells us he studied under Archelaus, and Valerius Cato under Philocomus. Two others also taught and promoted grammar in various branches, namely, Lucius Elius Lanovinus, the son-in-law of Quintus Elius, and Servius Claudius, both of whom were Roman knights, 
and men who rendered great services both to learning and the republic. Lucius Elius had a double cognomen, for he was called Precanius, because his father was a herald, Stilo, because he was in the habit of composing orations for most of the speakers of highest rank. Indeed, he was so strong a partisan of the nobles that he accompanied Quintus Metellus Numidicus in his exile. Servius, having clandestinely obtained his father-in-law's book before it was published, was disowned for the fraud which he took so much the heart that, overwhelmed with shame and distress, he retired from Rome and being seized with a fit of the gout, in his impatience he applied a poisonous ointment to his feet, which half killed him, so that his lower limbs mortified while he was still alive. After this, more attention was paid to the science of letters, and it grew in public estimation, insomuch that men of the highest rank did not hesitate in undertaking to write something on the subject and it is related that sometimes there were no less than twenty celebrated scholars in Rome. So high was the value, and so great were the rewards of grammarians, that Latatius Daphnides, jocularly called Pan's Herd, by Linnaeus Melissus, was purchased by Quintus Catullus for two hundred thousand sesterces, and shortly afterwards made a freedman. And that Lucius Apuleius, who was taken into the pay of Apicius Calvinus, a wealthy Roman knight, at the annual salary of ten thousand crowns, had many scholars. Grammar also penetrated into the provinces, and some of the most eminent amongst the learned taught it in foreign parts, particularly in Gallia Togata. In the number of these we may reckon Octavius Teucer, Sicenius Jacus, and Opius Carus, who persisted in teaching to a most advanced period of his life, at a time when he was not only unable to walk, but his sight failed. The appellation of grammarian was borrowed from the Greeks, but at first the Latins called such persons literati. Cornelius Nepus, also in his book, where he draws a distinction between a literate and a philologist, says that in common phrase, those are properly called literati, who are skilled in speaking or writing with care or accuracy, and those more specially deserved the name who translated the poets, and were called grammarians by the Greeks. It appears that they were named literators by Massala Corvinus, in one of his letters, when he says, that it does not refer to Furius Bibaculus, not even to Sigida, nor to Cato the literator, meaning, doubtless, that Valerius Cato was both a poet and an eminent grammarian. Some there are who draw a distinction between a literati and a literator, as the Greeks do between a grammarian and a grammatist, applying the former term to men of real erudition, the latter to those whose pretensions to learning are moderate. And this opinion Orbilius supports by examples. For he says that in old times, when a company of slaves was offered for sale by any person, it was not customary, without good reason, to describe either of them in the catalogue as a literati, but only as a literator, meaning that he was not a proficient in letters, but had a smattering of knowledge. The early grammarians taught rhetoric also, 
and we have many of their treatises which include both sciences whence it arose i think that in later times although the two professions had then become distinct the old custom was retained or the grammarians introduced into their teaching some of the elements required for public speaking such as the problem the periphrasis the choice of words description of character and the like in order that they might not transfer their pupils to the rhetoricians no better than ill-taught boys but i perceive that these lessons are now given up in some cases on account of the want of application or the tender years of the scholar for i do not believe that it arises from any dislike in the master i recollect that when i was a boy it was the custom of one of these whose name was princeps to take alternate days for declaiming and disputing and sometimes he would lecture in the morning and declaim in the afternoon when he had his pulpit removed i heard also that even within the memories of our own fathers some of the pupils of the grammarians passed directly from the schools to the courts and at once took a high place in the ranks of the most distinguished advocates the professors at that time were indeed men of great eminence of some of whom i may be able to give an account in the following chapters savius nicanor first acquired fame and reputation by his teaching and besides he made commentaries the greater part of which however are said to have been borrowed he also wrote a satire in which he informs us that he was a freedman and had a double cognomen in the following verses saevius nicanor marci libertus negabit saevius postumius idem sed marcus docebit what Savius Nicanor, the freedman of Marcus, will deny, the same Savius, called also Posthumius Marcus, will assert. It is reported that, in consequence of some infamy attached to his character, he retired to Sardinia, and there ended his days. Aurelius Apilius, the freedman of some Epicurean, first taught philosophy, then rhetoric, and less of all, grammar. Having closed his school, he followed Rutilius Rufus when he was banished to Asia, and there the two friends grew old together. He also wrote several volumes on a variety of learned topics, nine books of which he distinguished by the number and names of the nine muses. As he says, not without reason, they being the patrons of authors and poets. I observe that its title is given in several indexes by a single letter, but he uses two in the heading of a book called Pinnix. Marcus Antonius Nepho, free-born native of Gaul, was exposed in his infancy, and afterwards received his freedom from his foster father, and, as some say, was educated at Alexandria, where Dionysius Scytobrachion was his fellow pupil. This, however, I am not very ready to believe, as the times at which they flourished scarcely agree. He is said to have been a man of great genius, of singular memory, well read in Greek as well as Latin, and of a most obliging and agreeable temper, who never haggled about remuneration, but generally left it to the liberality of his scholars. He first taught in the house of Julius Caesar, when the latter was yet but a boy, and afterwards in his own private house. 
He gave instruction in rhetoric also, teaching the rules of eloquence every day, but declaiming only on festivals. It is said that some very celebrated men frequented his school, and, among others, Marcus Cicero, during the time he held the praetorship. He wrote a number of works, although he did not live beyond his fiftieth year. But Ateus, the philologist, says that he left only two volumes, De Latino Sermone, and that the other works ascribed to him were composed by his disciples, and were not his, although his name is sometimes to be found in them. Marcus Pompilius Andronicus, a native of Syria, while he professed to be a grammarian, was considered an idle follower of the Epicurean sect, and little qualified to be a master of a school. Finding, therefore, that at Rome, not only Antonius Nepho, but even other teachers of less note were preferred to him, he retired to Cume, where he lived at his ease. And, though he wrote several books, he was so needy and reduced to such straits as to be compelled to sell that excellent little work of his, the Index to the Annals, for sixteen thousand sesterces. Orbilius had informed us that he redeemed this work from the oblivion into which it had fallen, and took care to have it published with the author's name. Orbilius Papillus of Beneventum, being left an orphan by the death of his parents, who both fell a sacrifice to the plots of their enemies on the same day, acted at first as a parator to the magistrates. He then joined the troops in Macedonia, when he was first decorated with the plumed helmet, and afterwards promoted to serve on horseback. Having completed his military service, he resumed his studies, which he had pursued with no small diligence from his youth upwards. And, having been a professor for a long period in his own country, at last, during the consulship of Cicero, made his way to Rome, where he taught with more reputation than profit. For, in one of his works, he says that he was then very old and lived in a garret. He also published a book with the title of Periologus, containing complaints of the injurious treatment to which professors submitted without seeking redress at the hands of parents. His sour temper betrayed itself, not only in his disputes with the sophists opposed to him, whom he lashed on every occasion, but also towards his scholars, as Horace tells us, who calls him a flogger, and the Mischus Marsus, who says of him, Si quos orbilius ferulas cuticaque cecidit, if those orbilius with rod or ferule thrashed, and not even men of rank escaped his sarcasms, for, before he became noticed, happening to be examined as a witness in a crowded court, Varro, the advocate on the other side, put the question to him, what he did, and by what profession he gained his livelihood. He replied that he lived by removing hunchbacks from the sunshine into the shade, alluding to Morena's deformity. He lived till he was near a hundred years old, but he had long lost his memory, as the verse of Bibaculus informs us. Orbilius ubinam est literarum oblivio. Where is Orbilius now, that rack of learning lost? His statue is shown in the capital, at Beneventum. It stands on the left hand, and is sculptured in marble, representing him in a sitting posture, wearing the pallium, 
with two writing cases in his hand. He left a son, named also Orbilius, who, like his father, was a professor of grammar. Ateus, the philologist, of freedman, was born at Athens. Of him, Capito Ateus, the well-known jurisconsul, says that he was a rhetorician among the grammarians, and a grammarian among the rhetoricians. Asinius Pollio, in the book in which he finds fault with the writings of Sallus for his great affectation of obsolete words, speaks thus. In this work, his chief assistant was a certain Ateus, a man of rank, a splendid Latin grammarian, the aider and preceptor of those who studied the practice of declamation. In short, one who claimed from himself the cognomen of Philologus. Writing to Lysias Hermas, he says, that he had made great proficiency in Greek literature and some in Latin, that he had been a hearer of Antonius Nepho and his Hermas, and afterwards began to teach others. Moreover, that he had for pupils many illustrious youths, among whom were the two brothers Appius and Pulcher Claudius, and that he even accompanied them to their province. He appears to have assumed the name of Philologus, because, like Eratosthenes, who first adopted that cognomen, he was in high repute for his rich and varied stores of learning, which indeed it was evident from his commentaries, though but few of them are extant. Another letter, however, to the same Hermas, shows that they were very numerous. Remember, it says, to recommend generally our extracts, which we have collected, as you know, of all kinds, into eight hundred books. He afterwards formed an intimate acquaintance with Caius Celestius, and on his death with Asinius Polio. And when they undertook to write a history, he supplied the one with short annals of all Roman affairs, from which he could select at pleasure, and the other with rules on the art of composition. I am, therefore, surprised that Asinius Polio should have supposed that he was in the habit of collecting old words and figures of speech for Sallust when he must have known that his own advice was that none but well-known and common and appropriate expressions should be made use of, and that, above all things, the obscurity of the style of Sallust and his bold freedom in translations should be avoided. End of Lives of the Eminent Grammarians, Part 1 Recording by Leni, Rio de Janeiro, 2008